Hi there. Thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna, and you will be with me for the next hour as we are going to be interviewing a cardiologist who has been doing some major research his whole life on near-death experiences. Gotta love this guy. Um, one of his prerequisites, which I absolutely respected and love, he said, I will be on this podcast, but the producer must read my book. Now, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I really do take the time to read everybody's book that we interview here. I feel like it makes for a better podcast. Um, I put a lot of time and effort into the questions that I love to ask. And for those of you who have been long-term listeners, I'm sure that that comes through to you guys. So if you would like to support the hard work that I am doing on the hours outside of my other job, and if you would like to become a sponsor and help us to fund the podcast to keep it for free, I would absolutely love and appreciate that so much. So you want to know how you do it? I'll let you know. You head on over to the Path 11 podcast website. On the right-hand side, there's an orange button. It says become a patron. You click on that link and that's going to bring you to our Patreon site. And this is a really cool way where people can raise money. It helps to support, uh, you know, businesses like us to really get their products out there and to keep what they're doing for free. And it's a little give back program. Reminds me a little bit of Kickstarter, but it's a little bit different. But anyway, um, you can donate anywhere from a dollar to $25 a month. There's no obligation after you do donate to continue, but any little bit helps us. So check that page out, see if there's a monetary price that works within your budget and uh, help support the Path 11 podcast. Thank you. All right. Now let me introduce you to our guest. So today I am joined with Dr. Pim Von Lamel, who is a world-renowned cardiologist. Since his initial study of near-death experiences, which was published in the prestigious medical journal The Lancet, Dr. Von Lamel has resigned his post as practicing cardiologist to devote his time to further research and lecturing all over the world on near-death experiences. And today we're going to be speaking with him about his book, Consciousness Beyond Life, The Science of Near-Death Experience. Welcome. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, it is it is such a pleasure to have you here um, on our podcast, and we do appreciate you be, being a guest. And we have lots of questions to ask you. Um, I did get a chance to read your book, and it sparked many questions for me. Uh, I have been studying consciousness not for as long as you have, but since 2008. So I am still very much a beginner and, um, and an explorer of this. And I found your book to be very riveting, especially with the fact that you are a doctor and a cardiologist and studying the heart and, um, you know, trying to answer some of the big questions, you know, if consciousness has a biological basis at all, um, you know, when we're pronounced brain dead, does that actually equal death? So these are some fascinating questions that I'm looking forward to speaking with you. But I'd also like you to let our listeners know who may not be familiar with your work at all, how your journey began in beginning to be very interested in near-death experiences. Yes. Well, as a cardiologist, I was uh, able to talk to patients who survived the cardiac arrest. And in 1986, I read a book about near-death experiences, Return from Tomorrow by George Ritchie, who had an extensive near-death experience as a medical student. He was declared death for about 
nine minutes. He came back and had a very impressive and he and that was the moment that I started to ask patients who survived the cardiac arrest if they had memories from the period of unconsciousness. And to my big surprise, within two years, out of fifty patients who survived cardiac arrest, twelve of them shared the NDE with me. And then that was the moment that my scientific curiosity started because according to what I have learned on university or medical school, it is impossible to experience consciousness, let, let alone an enhanced consciousness with the possibility of perception, emotions, cognition, etc. At the moment that the brain doesn't function, doesn't function at all because in cardiac arrest, what is called clinical death, there's no consciousness and no brain function. Yeah, exactly. And what I found interesting was it was back in 1969 when you witnessed your first patient go into cardiac arrest, die and come back. But it wasn't until 1986 that you really began to explore this more and question your patients. I I hadn't read anything about your death experience. I didn't know that it was possible at all. So the patients in 1969, it was in my rotating internship, and that was the beginning of coronary cannulas, the beginning of coronary of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So defibrillation and external chest compression were just possible. And I was working as a young doctor in the third coronary care unit in the Netherlands. And when we resuscitated a patient, we were very, very happy, of course, because that was all new for us. But the patient was very, very disappointed and told me about going through a tunnel, seeing a light and hearing music. I always tell people, I have never forgotten this event, but I didn't do anything with it until I read the book about Andy, and also later I read the book about Raymond Moody, Return from Tomorrow. But I didn't know anything about the possibility to experience consciousness in cardiac arrest. Now, can you also explain for our listeners what is clinical death? So when we're looking at the medical terminology and what is defined by a clinical death and what constitutes that, and then, you know, explaining how, because part of our question is trying to answer how is all of this possible when many of these people are pronounced clinically dead? Exactly. That's an important question and an important aspect as well. Clinical death is the affordance of the period of unconsciousness caused by uh, the cardiac arrest in patients with an acute myocardial infarction. There's uh, no circulation, no breathing, and people lose consciousness within seconds. And um, when you don't initiate cardiopulmonary resuscitation within five to ten minutes, all patients will die because of irreversible damage to the brain. So it is the first stage of the process of dying. And all patients who have cardiac arrest uh, have this, uh, we are called them clinical death. And in, in the medical community, the knowledge is, is that it's impossible to experience consciousness exactly. when this happens. Exactly. So that was the challenge for us. So when, uh, we heard, when I had heard those 12 patients who shared the NDE with me between 86 and 88, we started the prospective study in the Netherlands and 10 Dutch hospitals um, to study, the, to have an explanation for the cause and content of the NDE that had never been done before in a prospective design. Prospective design means that you start to ask patients just in the first day after the successful resuscitation if they have memories from a period 
of unconsciousness. And within four years, we had 344 survivors of cardiac arrest. And of those patients, 18% had clear memories of the period of unconsciousness. So they had an NDE, a near-death experience. And also in this study, too, um, you know, with it being a longitudinal study, you also were looking at the different elements um, of near-death experiences. And I know that you have also found that there are 12 universal um, elements to near-death experiences. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So that's also the, what was the definition of the death experience is for me the, the reported memories of a period of special state of consciousness with universal elements. And the universal elements is the first thing is the, the body feelings, the pain in the body is left. You feel quite happy and you realize yourself, I am dead or not. Then you can have uh, the experience of... Uh, perceiving yourself from above, you see, see your own resuscitation from above, from your life of, lifeless body. And then you can come into a dark space, a dark, and then you see a small light where you are at, attracted to, but most people describe as a tunnel. Then they can come in another worldly dimension with meeting a, a light or a being of light feeling unconditional love, total acceptance, and being in contact with unbelievable wisdom. They can meet deceased relatives where they can communicate with. They have can have a life review, so you relive again everything what you have done and thought in your past life. Sometimes they have a, a, a flash forward, so you see future events of your life. The people can come to a border and they know that if they pass their border, they will never come again, back again in, into the body. And mostly they are sent back by deceased relatives uh, or by the being of light. And they're telling you it's not your time yet. You have still a task to fulfill. And then you come back into their sick body, which is an awful experience. Because they're feeling their consciousness is much too widened to enhance to be back in this too small body with all the complaints and limitations of their disease. So these are the elements. Now, I'd also like to talk a little bit about non-locality, because in your yep. book, you, you speak a lot about endless consciousness yep. and how consciousness cannot be located in a particular time and how this also correlates, too, with uh, quantum theory and quantum physics. So for our listeners who this is very new to, can you explain that concept of non-locality? Yes, uh, it, it's an analogy with quantum physics. Quantum physics does not explain near-death experiences. But the analogy is that people who have the near-death experience tell us that they feel connected with everybody from the past and also from the future, and that there is no beginning of the consciousness, and there will be not be an end to consciousness, and they feel connected. And the analogy with uh, quantum physics is that there is an interconnectedness, an instantaneous interconnectedness with everything at the same moment. And um, that is what people tell us. And when they come back in your body, they feel still the same interconnectedness. They feel connected with everybody else and with nature. And uh, they can still have a feeling of future events as well. 
So which is what, what I call the enhanced intuitive sensitivity. And uh, so the interconnectedness with everything, with everybody, also during the near-death experience, is what we call non-locality, which is interconnectedness. Entanglement is the terminology in quantum physics, which everything and everybody beyond time and beyond space. Great. Thank you for that. And I'd like to kind of jump to chapter nine, which connects a bit with non-locality, because this was really interesting for me. And, you know, chapter nine is titled, What Do We Know About Brain Function? And it was just, I mean, I got so much information from this chapter. I'm not quite sure where to begin. But when we're talking about the non-locality and where is consciousness actually stored, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned um, another person by the name of, I might pronounce it wrong, but Pribbums and his holographic hypothesis that memories are not stored in the brain itself, but in the electromagnetic field of the brain. Pribram, yeah. Yeah, well, um, that, that's one of the theories. Um, first, let's go back to the clinical death period. We know that people who have a cardiac arrest and are clinical death that they lose consciousness, that there are no body reflexes anymore, which is a function of the cortex of the brain. There are no brainstem reflexes anymore. The gag reflex, the corneal reflex, and widened pupils are clinical findings of those patients. The brain, the breathing center is close to the brainstem and doesn't function anymore, so there's no breathing anymore. So the clinical findings of those patients with cardiac arrest, there is no brain function at all. And there have been patients in cardiac arrest where an EEG was possible, not in cardiac arrest and the coronary carriage, but in other circumstances like doing an operation with cardiac arrest. And then you see that within 10 to 20 seconds, the EEG is flatlined. So there is no electrical activity at all left in the brain. And in animal studies, in induced cardiac arrest, we see that also the deeper structures of the brain don't function anymore within 10 to 20 seconds. So now we know that people have this enhanced consciousness with the possibility of perception, uh, with emotions, with cognition, uh, at the moment that the brain doesn't function at all. And that was the challenge to get an explanation how this is possible. And so the new uh, approach for me is that the brain is not a producer of consciousness, but it, is a, it has some facilitating functions. It makes it possible to experience consciousness. And to understand this, I compare it with the modern iCloud, with the internet, the, with your laptop or with your computer, you can receive more than one billion websites, and you can uh, millions and millions of YouTube films, but they're not stored or produced by your laptop. But your laptop makes it possible to receive those billion websites and YouTube films. So compare your brain with your computer. It doesn't produce it, but it makes it possible as long as it is functions. So when your brain functions, do you have your waking consciousness, but it's just an aspect of this enhanced local consciousness. But when the brain stop, function stops, you have this enhanced consciousness beyond time, beyond space, without beginning, without end. Yeah, and you also gave some examples, too, about how, you know, with MRIs, when uh, people were undergoing MRIs, that MRIs can't really show what happens in our mind, and it really also says nothing about the content of our thoughts and our feelings. 
exactly. What we can measure with neurophysiological uh, methods like the PET scan of the fMRI or the EEG, you can measure activation. You can, with the PET scan, you, you can measure chemical activation in parts of the brain with fMRI. You can measure changes in blood flow in parts of the brain. But you cannot measure consciousness. You cannot measure the content of consciousness. You can just measure changes in activation, which is called neural correlates. And neural correlates is the combination, the correlation with consciousness. And with those studies, you cannot tell us if this activation is the result or the cause of consciousness. And according to me, this activation is the result of consciousness. Because without brain function, we have this enhanced consciousness. And it's the same when, when you put off your television set of your laptop, there's still all those the websites or your television programs are still there, but you don't receive it. Right, right. Yes, I like those examples that you gave. Um, now, I'm also curious to know, I'd like to ask you about some of the theories out there about DMT and how really that it you know, the near-death experience is more of this uh, DMT being stored in the pineal gland and it's rushed out and sometimes goes into the spinal fluid and that there really isn't this near-death experience happening, but it's more due to the chemical of DMT dumping into the body and then people are experiencing that. That's not my idea. My idea is that the, the half time of DMT is extremely short. So, um, and it is not only in, in the epineal gland, but it's also in other organs in the body. But we cannot measure it because it's, it's already diminished. It's, it's, it's not there when you try to measure it. Um, but with ayahuasca, you have DMT together with another uh, stuff who makes the half time of DMT much lo uh, longer. And then people who use ayahuasca can have this kind of experience of enhanced consciousness sometimes depending of the situation depending of the doses etc but for me the dmt makes the connection between the brain and the consciousness it breaks the connection so it distorts the connection it, it's not the content of consciousness of the of the experience is not caused by the dmt but dmt causes the disconnection between the body and the brain and, and, and their consciousness. Okay, great. Thank you. Now, now, you know, through your research, you know, and the, the Dutch study that you did, you know, it's very interesting that, you know, people are having these near-death experiences, but some of their stories are so similar. And one of the things that seems to be pretty universal for people that have near-death experiences is that they lose all fear of death. Yes, so and, and, it is, and it is because they say death was not death. They experienced that death was another form of life. They know that when they've seen their, their lifeless body there during surgery or during CPR, they, they know I'm still here, fully aware of everything, but my body is up there, so I'm not my body. I have a body, but I am consciousness. And consciousness, there's a continuity of consciousness beyond the death of the body. 
And you also mentioned too that, you know, near-death experiences, this isn't kind of a new concept that you can really trace it back. And, you know, you highlighted stories of life after death found in many different religious texts from Hinduism to Buddhism, Judaism, Islam. Um, There's nothing new. Right. <laughs> so, what do you find is the biggest is the biggest challenge in really trying to continue to, um, you know, have people understand about this endless consciousness and that there really is nothing to fear when we do transition from the physical body. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, one of the reasons I wrote this book because people can read about it, and I give lectures all over the world and and uh, talk about it, and I meet thousands of have met thousands of people who had an NDE who shared it with me. The problem when you have an NDE in this Western world in our materialistic society, doctors and nurses and family members and partners don't believe them because what we've learned on school, what we've learned in universities, it's not possible to have these kind of experiences. So it's it's it, what I always tell people is that in the death experience, the content is perhaps beautiful and impressive, but to have such an experience is a spiritual trauma because you cannot share it with others, you cannot accept it yourself because it doesn't fit in your current worldview. And there are years of loneliness and depression and homesickness before they really can accept it themselves. And you can only accept it when people can listen to you. And then this, the next stage is that you can integrate it into your life so you can change the way you live. Because there is the transformational aspects of, of the near-death experience are very, very important for people. They change. The, the first thing is what you're told is they lose the fear of death. But the second thing is they have a new insight of what is important in life. And that is to accept and have unconditional love first towards yourself, to accept who you are also with your negative aspects. We always have negative aspects as well. And then have empathy, compassion toward other people, toward nature, toward the planet Earth. And the third thing is the enhanced intuitive sensitivity. They know the feeling of other people. They have, they know future events. They know that someone will have will die within three weeks, and it happens really. So they have access to the non-local consciousness of other people as well. And the three aspects we also studied in our longitudinal study in the in the Netherlands, and we found that only patients with an NDE have this transformation. So it's not having an cardiac arrest, but having a near-death experience in cardiac arrest, which makes the transformation. Right. And to re, I mean, thinking about, you know, what you said about, um, you know, people kind of having a hard time reintegrating into life as life is kind of continuing for everybody else around them, but then they have this profound experience. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about the homesickness um, that they experience, are you, because I, I, we had the chance to interview a woman in our first documentary about her near-death experience, and she was struck struck by lightning. Um, but she talked about a homesickness of wanting to kind of go back, go yeah. back home. And is that the homesickness that you're referring to as well? That's exactly the homesickness. They are homesick for the beautiful uh, uh, area where they were, the, the realm with unconditional love and feeling fully acceptance and feeling home. They say, this is home. So the most 
up to time during the end, they forget about the earth, they forget about the children and the family. They just want to stay there. And when they are forced to be back in the body, they are just homesick. And, you know, all of us that have not had a near-death experience, I think we're kind of on the same trail of trying to figure out what it is that they've experienced and know. So how do we as consciousness, you know, try to get to that that feeling of love, that feeling of not being fearful of death when you don't have the near-death experience? Well, first is to start to be open for people who have an NDE and to read about it. Ken Ring, a professor in psychology, uh, did a semester for students about near-death experiences. And they had an interview before the semester. And then they had to read books about NDE. They met people with near-death experience. They saw interviews with near-death experience. And after three months, they had another interview. And they all had changed. So we are open and interested you will have you, you will change always. So you don't need to have an NDE yourself to change. But perhaps the fear of death is far more for people with an NDE than people who just read about it. Right. And I would agree with you. I think that, you know, listening to people who have had near-death experiences, um, doing more research on it, I believe can help people's fear of death because, you know, studies like yourself, there's some evidence here. There's there's some, you know, studies being done to show. And, and also, you know, things that people can do, and you also talk about it in your book, you know, while they're not experiencing a near-death experience, there are other types of uh, forms of non-locale consciousness, like remote viewing and out-of-body experiences that many people can practice and get into and allow that to be an experience for them to see that their consciousness can move outside of their body. Yeah, it's not that simple to induce an out-of-body experience yourself, but about 10% of younger people have a spontaneous out-of-body experience between the period of being awake or falling asleep. So it's quite natural to have an out-of-body experience, but what you, you want to induce is not that simple. And remote viewing, or what I'll call is the non-local perception, is um, a lot of people, is it possible, but the studies that I've done for people are very good in it. it it's impressive. But it's hard to have your control when you have the idea to, that you have non-local perception to know that you're right. It's not that simple. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that there's more, um, you know, places out there and conferences on it and people teaching it and workshops that people, you know, can attend. There's lots of books written on all of this, too, you know, to assist people in trying to experience that. Now, you also mentioned some stuff about sleep in your book and dreamless sleep. And one of my questions was, because I've, I've heard people say that when we actually go to sleep, that in itself is an out-of-body experience, that our consciousness uh, is leaving this reality frame here, the physical body, and we are entering into a different uh, reality frame of consciousness when we sleep. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, you're quite right. One of the things you always ask the audience when I give a lecture is, where is your consciousness when you are asleep? And they, you see they start thinking about it because you don't experience consciousness when you're asleep. But there is always consciousness, but it's not connected with your body. When you're dreaming, then you are in an other realm of consciousness with also an enhanced consciousness. And sometimes you can have um, 
uh, dreams about future events. And especially people who have an NDE can have these kind of dreams. So that is a possibility, possibility but it is usually the, the REM phase, the REM phase, that you can have dreams or even lucid dreams, that you know that you're dreaming, you can change the content of your dream, the special states of dreaming. But when you are having a dreamless sleep, then still there's consciousness, but you don't experience it. And and what is going on exactly in dreamless sleep where we aren't able to recall what is happening? Well, I, I don't think that you can recall when you are sleeping what is happening in your room or so. I don't think so. Well, I mean, dreamless sleep as compared to like some people that might be able to recall a really vivid dream feeling like it was so real uh, where they could even talk about it years later very similar similarly to people that have had near-death experiences you know you had mentioned that when you interview these people years afterwards they can still in exact detail in the exact same way still recall and tell the story and some people uh, I know for myself personally and other people that I've talked to about dreams some people have had that experience with one or two dreams that they can remember 10 years later and say, gosh, that just felt so real. It didn't feel like a dream. Yeah, and, and that's especially when people have are in contact with the consciousness of deceased relatives. That is, I had a dream of my deceased partner, of my deceased mother, or deceased father. And this is not a dream. This is a conscious connection with the consciousness of a deceased relative. And that's not a dream. It happens during sleep because the threshold of consciousness during sleep is is lower. So you're you're more capable to have access to these higher dimensions. And people who have disease who want to contact you can do it better in when you are asleep. So the threshold your, your reception ability is enhanced during sleep. Right. And with all of these years of study and you're continuing to dedicate your life to it, what were some real pivotal moments for you um, and findings that just made you feel like there's no turning back here and just really change something within you as a person? Yeah. Well, it took quite a long time because there's a very traditional education of the medical school. So my first idea was always it's impossible. So when I had talk to those 12 patients who shared the idea with me. That was my scientific curiosity, how you could explain the cause and content of the idea. And then we did our prospective study and I talked to many more patients who had an NDE. Then I started to be convinced, and I'm now convinced that the brain doesn't produce consciousness, but it is it facilitates consciousness. And I'm now convinced that you have a body and you are conscious. It's because without a body, you can still have conscious experience. You can, you're still a conscious being without your body. So I quote sometimes a man with an enemy who said, I can live without my body, but my body cannot live without me. Right. Yes. And and it is, you know, when I think about that, too, so some people, you know, in their stories of near-death experiences, so they're witnessing, they're able to report back, um, like I'm thinking about... Um, people under anesthesia, right? Yeah. They kind of have a little bit of that out-of-body experience. You know, their consciousness is is looking in. They can explain things. But there really isn't a vehicle to do anything with that. It just is more observation. I, I don't understand your question. Um, well, the, I guess my, my con- 
what I'm trying to connect is the fact that, yes, the brain helps to facilitate it. And then the physical body, we play things out with the consciousness. But the, the body and the brain are important parts of consciousness in order for the consciousness to be able to evolve and have experiences. Um, because if we were just, you know, floating around in consciousness, how are we learning and how are we evolving yeah. without the body? Yeah. I think being alive and being in a body is your learning process, the possibility to learn. Uh, but when you're out of your body, like in an NDE, you have still new ideas, new thoughts, new emotions, new memories that you didn't have when you, was, when you are in your body. So uh, you need your body to be on Earth and have your waking consciousness. And everything what you experience is going into this higher dimension of your own consciousness. Yes, exactly. And I think that that shows kind of the importance of of why we are in the body to be able to learn and to play play those ideas out. Yeah. So, so your, your, your body and your brain is an interface. It sends information from your body and from your senses towards your consciousness. And your consciousness gives information towards your body and towards your senses. Now, with people having these experiences with the near death and, you know, consciousness having, um, you know, these experiences of being met by loved ones, uh, this overfeeling of love, of peace, um, what are your thoughts on kind of multiple realities and different dimensions and consciousness traveling other places besides Earth? Well, people can tell us sometimes that the in the near-death experience, they were quite far away in the universe, and they have seen stars and planets, etc. And they are there instantaneously, because it's beyond time, beyond space, your consciousness is everywhere. And as soon as you have a, a, give intention, a, attention to your surroundings, you can experience this universe as well. So it's always there. But it's rather rare that people can tell us that they have been in the universe, but it is possible. Yeah. Now, since writing this book, I know, you know, that you continue to do a lot of work in this field. What are some of the newer things that you've been involved in since writing this book? Well, I've been writing articles, scientific articles. I've been uh, writing chapters, about 40 chapters and forwards in books, mostly in English books. And I lecture around the world. And my book has been translated now in nine languages. So I lecture all over Europe, in the United States, uh, South America. I'll be within two months in China because my book will be published in China as well. So I travel a lot, meet a lot of people with any little, meet a lot of people who are interested in, in the NAS experience. But especially, most important for me is the uh, the relationship between the body and the brain uh, with consciousness. So the mind-brain relationship. Because when the consciousness is not produced by the brain, then you need a new kind of science. Our current materialistic science is Everything is true, what you can measure, what you can objectify, what you can multiply, what you can reproduce, what you can falsify. But consciousness, you cannot measure, you cannot objectify, you cannot reproduce, you cannot falsify. falsify. So the consciousness and the content of consciousness is beyond our current materialistic science. So you need a new definition of science to include subjective experiences. And that's the challenge to, to talk about this 
what we call a post-materialist science, which includes consciousness. Yeah, and finding that new science, that was kind of going to be my next question is, you yeah. know, <laughs> what do you what do you feel like, you know, are still the unanswered questions? Like, where do we go from here? It, it almost seems like, you know, with all the work that you're doing amongst other people, that science just hasn't quite caught up with, with some of the findings to be able to explain this. Yes, it, it's changing. Let's say 10 years ago, the, the, the conference about consciousness in Tucson, to us, the science of consciousness, was about 60, 70, 80% of the lectures were about materialistic approach about consciousness, and now it is less than 50%. So it is changing. The, the more and more scientists are open to discuss the possibility that consciousness is fundamental. Everything comes from consciousness. Everything is consciousness and has uh, consciousness and that's a totally new approach and are you continuing any new studies or any new longitudinal studies or a part of anything that is going on right now no not right now I think the most important thing is that there's still such a huge taboo about near death experience a huge taboo about life and death I lecture also a lot for hospices for terminal care palliative care uh, hospitals, medical students, psychologists, philosophers. So there's so a lot of people are still have a huge ignorance about the mind-brain relationship and about the death experience, about consciousness. So I, I think it's important to lecture and to write, to publish about all these aspects of consciousness. Mm. And, you know, outside of doing podcasts, we also do documentaries. So I'm almost getting a sense when I'm speaking to you that it might even be important, you know, for there to be more documentaries out there collecting even more evidence and stories of people that have these near death experiences um, combined with some of these studies like you have done uh, to really break this taboo of this. There have been, I have been now part of about 80 international documentaries about near-death experiences. There has been a made a film in Holland about near-death experiences with, with, with people with an NDE and, and a lot of programs as well. And you can see the YouTube films on my website as well and interviews, etc. and also lectures. So that's, I think younger people are more open to see films and YouTube interviews than just go to a lecture I know. So that's why for me also it's important to take part in documentaries about NDEs. Yeah, and you know, I kind of feel too that, um, you know, here in the United States, people seem to fear death a lot more than say out in the Netherlands. Um, you no, know, my experience is when I lecture in the United States, I meet so many wonderful open people and interested people. But I know also that it's just a small part of the total population. I, I know that's true. Yeah. But there's a lot of wonderful scientists as well in the United States who are open for this new approach in science. Yeah, and I think that there is an openness, but you mentioned uh, earlier, too, uh, you know, I think the key is about talking about it. And I know in our culture, we are not very accustomed to feeling very comfortable to talk about death. People don't really have a <laughs> language for it. You know, yeah. you ask some people like, oh, have you created your will? Have you told your children your last wishes? And they're like, what? I don't want to talk about that. You know, so even trying to shift the culture and getting comfortable to talk about death is a challenge in itself. I think so. 
and and uh, perhaps in this uh, this aspect, the Netherlands is a little bit more open than the United States. But it's hard to generalize. I think uh, New England and and uh, San Francisco and LA, etc., are far more open than the Midwest or the Southwest. Yes, I would agree. Well, I'd like to thank you again for being a guest on our podcast. And again, I would really encourage our listeners, uh, the book that I read and that we were talking about today is Consciousness Beyond Life, The Science of Near-Death Experience with Dr. Pim von Lamel. So thank you very much. Um, any last parting words to our listeners before we end our, our segment here? No, I'm always happy to talk about it. And when people are more interested, just not just read my book, but they also can go to my website, which is also www.consciousnessbeyondlife.com. So they can read articles, they can see interviews, etc. Just to start. And I think that's a great place to start. Your website is filled with tremendous information. So thank you again for uh, being a part of our podcast. And I'm sure our listeners enjoyed this interview as well. For, for pleasure for me as well. If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time.